breakfast on this Monday evening. With me tonight, as always, we have my co-host, Peter Allison. Good evening, everyone. And for the trifecta, third time lucky, Adrian Tchaikovsky. Hello. Welcome back, sir. Oh, well, thank you very much for inviting me on the, sh- on the show again. Yeah, well, we obviously like you. We've been three times. <laughs> so, uh, Adrian. Uh, for those who have been living under a rock, who haven't caught up in the last podcast, who are you? What do you do? What's your thing? So I'm a science fiction and fantasy writer. I've written, I think we're past 50 books, novels and novellas now. Um, I am probably best known for writing about giant spiders from outer space, but I've got a fairly wide range of corners of the genre I've visited <laughs> from um, some epic fantasy, space opera, hard sci-fi, um, portal fantasy. There are bits I haven't done yet, but I'm getting to them. <laughs> what are the bits? What What is it you're trying to get to? Um, I mean, I've got some actual horror horror. So some of the novellas I've got coming out from Rebellion are more horror than I've done before. In fact, one of them is an actual, honest-to-God, gothic horror that's also a hard science fiction book, Ooh. which which was an interesting exercise. So kind of that's a, how, a, a Event that, Horizon type? Yeah. Well, I mean, in the sense, you know, there is a creepy old house, there is a family secret, so full-on gothic horror, so not even Event Horizon sort of thing, oh, but, ah, right, okay. uh, but it is also science fiction. Oh, interesting. That sounds really cool. I mean, you say you've written 50 books in an almost casual, offhand way, <laughs> given that most people write about a book a year. Yeah, I, thought, I was going to say you're 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 definitely not in the you're you're not in your fifties, are you? You're in your fifties. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I I have I don't know, I I I I just I have a I have a an absolute compulsion to write, and I have a fairly efficient <laughs> writing process basically, and it all kind of adds up to the. I tend to get maybe two novels and a novella or two in a year. What you need to do is go to George R. R. Martin's house, slap him upside the head, and go. This is how you write a book. This is how you. Do I mean, it. I, I mean, think, I am not. I'm not going to go there because I'm well aware that I'm an outlier. And <laughs> I am. You know, it's, I, I. This is the thing that I. I seem to be able to do. I. I don't feel that it's a thing that authors. Feel, authors should be pushing themselves to. I think I definitely pay pay the price psychologically in a variety of other other ways basically so um i don't think we should kind of try and to normalize hyper productivity do you think you work do you think you do it like saying that does that make you feel like you maybe do it too much is it to the detriment of your sort of social life or um i mean i often feel there's not much to me other than the writing to be honest and maybe a bit of game playing um i mean i'm basically i can go about two weeks without writing something complete you know new and original in prose um before i get extremely jittery and that i think is probably not terribly healthy but it is uh, as i've said before commercially convenient <laughs> do you do you find that i mean like you, you said like you, you get like jittery after two weeks if you don't write anything new what's the editing process like because i mean like if you're editing something and the editing process does take time especially in fiction it does well I mean, are we talking about my own self-editing or are we talking about dealing with edits that I've had from a publisher? Both, really. Um, so my own self-editing, I will usually, within that two-week space, I'll have got through the book. I'll have read it through and produced uh, an amended edit. Um, because one of the things I get out of my particular process is my first draft and my fi- my submission draft are very similar. I don't tend to do 
large, serious kind of re- re- rewrites, because, mostly because I think I plan a great deal or have a very clear picture of the world before I start writing. Um, with edits from publishers, I'm writing at the same time, so I'll be writing in the morning and editing in the afternoon. Um, because yeah, with the, the, one of the the downsides of getting that many that many balls in the air is you have to catch them all. And if I was stopping writing to catch them all, then I wouldn't write anything. <laughs> yeah. And do you find like the, you edit better in the afternoon rather than the morning, or vice versa? Um, I I seem to be quite flexible. So when I had a day job, I would write in the evenings, and then mostly I think because it's kind of my job. One of the jobs I do around the house is getting getting our son out, out to school that means i'm up in the morning and therefore i, I now tend to write in the mornings just because it's then there is a space of free time and sometimes i'll go in sort of early with him into leads and just get a double shift in starting at about seven in the morning so yeah i mean like like um work from home with the children so as soon as i get up with the children get them out of the house laptop on Cup of, cup of uh, hot drink and away I go. So yeah, I, I can sim- generally relate to that one. I've, I've, I'm jealous because my my motivation. Um, it, I, I get distracted way too easily. So being able to sort of focus on something um, like that, um, I find quite impressive. Because I just can't get myself to do it. I, I... well, I get out of the house. Um, this is the other thing. So I will go, I'll go into our local village or I'll go into Leeds and I'll sit down with um, a set of good headphones and some music and basically write in, write in a coffee shop. Do you do you not get distracted by music or anything? Like, I, I know... No, I, can... I, I, I use... Um, I, I, I find music helps me. I, I have, like, playlists of mood-appropriate music and I, it's, it's, it's something now I'm very used to. Um, weirdly enough, my... Um, my wife is a music psychology um, oh, academic, ooh. and she's actually going to be doing a study into writers and their relationships with music as they write, uh, which should be really fascinating. Yeah, um, absolutely. Because I mean, I mean, when I'm writing, I can't listen to music that has words in it. I can listen to ambient. I'm, I'm very, I'm very much the same. I'll, I'll, by the way, I'll, I'll, I'll give her your details <laughs> so she can include you in her in a in a study but yeah i can't do, i can't do anything with the lyrics uh, it's got to be instrumental but then most of my my standard listening stuff is tends to be like film soundtracks computer game soundtracks yeah, 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 yeah. yeah yeah i will listen to uh like pop music when i'm editing yeah i think it's a different part of the brain almost because like you got the creative part you kind of got that flow of words in your mind when you're editing something it's more analytical well, I think this is why I can do them both at the same time. I mean, the other thing I discovered, I've done some writing for tabletop and computer games in the last few years. I mean, there's a thing, it's come out recently. I think it's Chains of Asmodeus, the um, the D&D sort of big. Yeah. So I, I wrote a lot of, um, I didn't write scenario stuff for that. I wrote source material for it. So I did like locations, monsters, oh, right. okay. um, interesting ideas and think, uh, encounters and things like that. That also didn't use the same part of my brain. So I could write in the morning and do that in the afternoon, and it didn't kind of draw on the same well in any way, which was interesting. Like I, I have, like I've got, um, I'm ADHD and 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 ASD, and um, I find that certain, like I can't, like mu- music with words and stuff, I I can't concentrate with it on. Mm-hmm. If it's music I really like as well, um, and I'm doing something I'm meant to be doing, um, then. 
I again, I'm more focused on the music, and I'm just like, oh, I like that song and stuff, and it distracts me. But I find that if I have background noise, so music I like, but I'm doing monotonous sort of repetitive tasks, which I struggle with in general. I like mm. I can just boss I can just like like I can do my house I can do all kinds of things and it's just like as long as I've got that sort of noise going on in the background if for some reason it sort of uh cancels out the inner voices which are stopping me from doing things because they're distracted that's, by that that music that's for me that's when I do uh podcasts and audiobooks is when I when I'm either traveling or whether I'm when I'm doing stuff around the house that's like that yeah yeah exactly uh, yeah. and again I couldn't write with that on because it's it's it, it's basically yeah. it, it's the same part of the brain as having it's to deal words. with the words. Yeah, my only yeah. Sort of, the only downside I have for that because again I'll do audiobooks and um for example I was just listening to the end of the death volume two recently just finished it but I find myself because I was doing it while I was doing housework and walk around the house. I was zoning out and I was I was losing out and things. I was like, oh, crap, I'm going to have to rewind back because I completely forgot what's going on there now. So I find that I have to be careful because sometimes I'll zone myself into what mm-hmm. I'm doing and I'll block out what's going on in my head. It literally is just stuff going in one ear and going out another. So I, it's, a, it's sort of a happy balance I need to have on those things. Yeah, I mean, I found... Many years ago, before I was uh, freelancing as full time, I was still working a day job, and I'd done some uh, work for uh, for the BBC about LARPing, and I'd done dozens of interviews of various LARPers. And what I would do is I'd be sitting at my desk using the software and listening to the interviews at the same time, and then in the evening on the way back, I'd be typing up um, the, the responses, and that was I got away with that for months before i'll just sort of round them note but because obviously you talked about your bbc did you write an article about not liking doctor who or something recently <laughs> for the bbc yes i, I yes. haven't i haven't read it yet but i was just wow. like i saw i saw the thing and i went has he just dissed doctor who on its like 60th anniversary on the bbc <laughs> a background for that i did it was for the 50th anniversary oh 50th right okay and uh basically the, the editor of bbc at the time asked me to find someone who didn't like doctor who and i i was ambivalent um <laughs> it was take it or leave it but i one of my friends chris salis did not like doctor who so I sat down with him for uh, for 20, 30 minutes, and yeah, that's what he got. He, he got a massive rant. I mean, I, I feel there's a long, a long and honourable. Uh, well, there's a long tradition, at least, of the BBC finding people to do hatchet jobs on Doctor Who. I mean, the the, 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 the BBC as an establishment has had long periods of really, really not liking that Doctor Who is popular in any way. So. Yeah, basically, there's kind of one to the counterpoint. And, I mean, the guy, Finlow, uh, was a fan. He, he likes Doctor Who, but he just felt, let's kind of get drum up a bit of controversy here. I was like, okay. <laughs> and, I was, and I was, at the time, their sci-fi guy, their worst, not mine, um, they hit me up and said, what do you think of Doctor Who? And, that, and, yeah, and then for a brief moment in time, I was the most hated person on the internet. Mm. <laughs> and to be fair, it was kind of maybe justified. I have to say, uh, Doctor Who does nothing for me. Um, it's not been anything I've, like, I grew up with, um, oh God, what's his name? Um, Sean Pertwee. No, 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 no. 
Uh, How old do you think he is? Uh, as old as me. Uh, oh, God, I can remember. The, the, the bloody uh, white suit and the hat and the um, plays. Bloody Sylvester McCoy. I grew up with Sylvester yeah. McCoy. Okay. And um, <clears throat> I, I just don't know what it, it was never anything. Because it was Sylvester McCoy. The stuff with Sylvester McCoy. So, John Pertwee, John Pertwee, not yeah, Sylvester McCoy. Yeah, Sylvester yeah. McCoy was, I think some of it, I just remembered it being quite dark. And as a kid, yeah. as a kid, not really sort of wanting that and um, just not really being that bothered. And then after that, it just never sat with me. Uh, and and I've just, I like, I've watched it now and again, and I've been like, yeah, it's a thing. And it's never been an obsession of mine. Um, it's never been something that's really sort of floated any of the proverbial boat. That was very much my first fandom, to be honest. Um, I probably pretty much sort of cut my reading teeth on the old target novelization so oh, i i, I yeah. still i'm i'm a bit behind on modern who but i still have an extremely fond sort of spot in my heart it's one of those i don't know if i'd ever quite find an idea that they would go for but it's certainly a franchise i'd be quite i'd quite like to write for at some point um, and there are honestly there are surprisingly few where i kind of feel that's necessarily a viable prospect yeah i've been chat- chatting with Sylvester McCoy a few years ago and an SFX interview, and the, he was saying, like, no, we were deliberately darker than the past iterations of um, Doctor Doctor Who because they want to kind of explore more political issues, such as like race. Yeah, well, um, I, I, do, I very, I very vividly remember an episode where, and I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but it's about like cats uh or cat people and and i just sort of there's mm-hmm. a bit where one of the the pet cats gets eaten or something and there's like a dead cat there and i just sort of have that image in my head and that's for me was doctor who these these really this is really freaky episodes about cats and um that is my sort of kind of lasting memory of it and well, I mean, what would you like to do with doctor who uh adrian um there, I mean, the, the, so for me, I mean, as with most of the things I was a fan of, the things I liked in Doctor Who were the monsters. So there are all sorts of interesting kind of Doctor Who monsters that could use another spin. And I mean, I suspect that a lot of the ones I would like to have a go at have probably already had an outing in one medium, medium or another because it's a um, it's a franchise which helps. He has it's an enormous audio um library and an enormous kind of um, novels only library and as well as all of the tv stories but i would i mean i the mischievous part of me suggests that i should really write a sequel to planet of the spiders where the spiders are exonerated um <laughs> return to metabolist three or something but uh I, I i suspect that would probably be too on brand uh, <laughs> it is your. It is to be fair it is your brand it is something you're... it is but it's not necessarily doctor who's brand <laughs> I saw, oh, subversion, subversion. This is what you need. I saw. I saw. Oh, is, sorry, carry on. I was going to say this is kind of what I did with the the Gene Stealer cults in, in Warhammer when I got to write a novella for them. Which yeah. that's a, such a good idea, though. I lo- you know how, playing it from that side of, of the coin is amazing. Like I would love them to do a Star Wars film that is on the side of the Empire, sort of like the whole. There's a load of fan fiction about it. There's a fan video about basically a guy whose family was killed by the rebellion. That's why he joined the Empire, and then he sort of. Uh, it's about him fighting for them to get sort of back. You know the what? Rebe- 
about eight years ago, I would have been agreed with you. Uh, right now, we are seeing so much Evil Empire stuff in the real world that I kind of feel that yeah, okay, glorif- yeah. glorifying the fascist empire yeah. um, is maybe not what we need out of that franchise. <laughs> yeah. True. A bit too, mu- True. Bit too much authorita- authoritarianism right now, to be yeah, fair. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, this is the thing. It, it, we, we've kind of... Um, I kind of feel that's the sandbox that doesn't necessarily need to be played in. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, I agree. And Kurt, there with was Kurt... the book Thrawn, as I recall, which explored Grand Animal Thrawn's yeah, rise well, they, throughout they, the ranks. They had like lots of the old school sort of books and stuff. Did sort of they, they didn't skirt around like they didn't say the Empire was a good thing, but they they said there was ulterior motives for certain things like the Death Star and stuff like that. And it was sort of it wasn't there just for um, oppressing and sort of. Um, consolidating yeah. sort of it was a I uh, mean as, I mean as, as honestly as per the, um, the as per the book I've got coming out next month I'm all for a story of like the soldier's eye view of the war from the point of view of a soldier of the evil empire as long as you don't obscure the fact that the empire is in fact still evil and I think that's the problem it's very easy you, know, you lose sight of that very 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 quickly if you're not careful yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, House of Open Wounds sounds amazing as well. It's it's got a wonderful blend of like supernatural and science. And what are... uh, I mean, there's 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 demo science in it, but <laughs> there's no. I mean, it's 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 a full on fantasy. There's no there's no, no science. So what? Um, what that's that leads us on to on to that book. So what? Uh, House of Open Wounds. What's it about? Uh, tell us a little bit more about it. Um, so this kind of there was. Um, Many, many years ago at, I think, an EasterCon, uh, which for people who don't do the convention thing is it's one of the two big British uh, science fiction conventions. Um, there was a panel about basically healing in fantasy and the fact that there is almost no healing in fantasy. It doesn't tend to turn up when magic turns up. It goes bang or pop or controls minds. But magical healing is quite problematic to narrative. And I had an idea then I want to do MASH. But <laughs> in a high magical world. Yes. And finally, many, many years later, that, that has come to pass with House of Open Wounds. So this is uh, in the same world as City of Last Chances, although you do not have to have read City of Last Chances to read this one. Uh, there are some common characters if you have read them, but you don't need to know their, full, their history or anything like that. Um, the idea is the literally the bad guys of the first, uh, the first book, the occupying um, Palacine, um, are at war with another sort of comparable power. And we are seeing the war from the point of view of inside the medic's tent. You do not get to see battles. You do not get to, to understand what what is being fought over or anything like that. You have a group of medical professionals of various slants who get to patch people up in the middle of this. It's almost kind of like an, a, a fantasy Napoleonic era war. It's very... Um, guns and troops and artillery sort of thing okay but magical um the twist being that the palacine as a culture are very very against gods religion mysticism anything that offends their idea of perfection which is their big thing because they are a philosophical empire um however one of the things they kind of found as they conquered various places and exterminated various religions is some of these priests can actually heal some of these gods actually genuinely are quite useful and so they kind of keep them around on sufferance so long as they keep putting soldiers back together. 
Uh, and so you have this amazing grab bag of weird sort of leftover priests and former revolutionaries and a god smuggler, <laughs> which is a thing in this world that there was someone whose profession was god smuggler up until he got caught by the Palestine. Um <laughs> who all have their own ways of healing and all of whom are not terribly happy to be working for the Palestine, but it's better than being shot. <laughs> and the book kind of follows this, um, basically found family of the med of the, the medicos and their orderlies and various people in the army. As you see the war entirely from the point of view of the medical tent. Mm. It's one of those things. So there is no, Unlike the previous book, there is no map in this book. And the reason there is no map in this book is none of the characters know where the hell they are going at any given time, what they're doing there, or anything like that. They have no broader perspective on the war because nobody tells them anything. So how do you... That's obviously... Uh, with MASH, you had you know lots of different sort of um, little storylines going to keep things mm -hmm. interesting. How do you keep something that is effectively not... Um, Based on a, a single sort of area, the tent, the Medicaid tent, uh, how do you keep that interesting for an entire book? Um, I mean, two ways. First of all, the medical tent is obviously a movable feast in and of itself. So the war moves about and they get dragged along with it. Um, you, um, There is a development um, as the war goes on, the Palestine attitude to, to it and to them goes on various things that they are doing in a healing way you get people turning up saying ah oh, that could be an interesting thing if we could deploy it against the enemy oh, okay. and so you have this kind of rearguard action they're constantly um fighting against the institution that is employing them to stop their various tools and toys and indeed gods being used to prosecute the actual war and at the same time all of these i mean much like city of last chances it is a bit of a mosaic novel the point of view skips around you see you get an intertwining of lots of little personal stories and you see all of these people and their grievances and their pasts and their trajectory as the war squeezes them and where that leads them and mm -hmm. so hopefully it doesn't at any point sort of get get stale because the war is always changing, and they are always changing as characters. Given that the, the intensely medical nature of the story, did you have to kind of do any massive research into, like, um, traditional healing? Uh, no, because magic. Hashtag <laughs> <laughs> magic. I mean, so for, for example, one of the characters is a sympathetic healer, so yeah. she will just lay hands on someone, and then she will have their wounds, they will be fine, and then she heals herself at a, an accelerated rate. And so, yeah, there's no real way you can research that as far as real medicine goes, because none of it makes any sense. Yeah, but anatomy and, and things like that. Um, I mean, I've got a, I've got a decent sort of biosciences training. I, I know how you know the human body goes together in general, but also, um, I mean, the answer does tend to come down to magic. In yeah. Sort of well, I mean, having said that, right? So obviously. If you are looking at a battlefield in the real world, say, 18, 1800s or 1900s, uh, or say 1700s, 1800s is probably better, um, the thing that kills you is disease. Mm -hmm. um, so here we have a couple of priests in the medical unit. One of them is a, priest, a priestess of a fire god, and all of her stuff comes pre-cauterized. So um, there is nothing on the scalpels that is going to going to make uh, going to uh, make you sick. 
The other one is a priest of disease god, which sounds like a terrible idea to have in camp, except that his god attracts all the disease. So none of the wounds go rotten. No one gets gangrene. The biggest cause of death in, say, the Crimean War just doesn't happen because his god is there gathering all the disease to itself as its, as its kind of faithful congregation. So, yes, to a certain extent, there is a, a connection to real world medicine, but mostly just so I can have fun saying, yes, yeah, that, that thing that is a real, real problem in history just isn't an issue here because they've got this going for them. Yeah, so much like, yeah, of course, when you have kind of that magical element, you can just say, hmm, we need blood. Okay, why'd you get some blood? Uh, and then you have things like uh, there is a necromancy w- a wing. <laughs> so there is this, uh, and the the chief necromancer is also the head of the military hospital. Um, and there is a constant tension where she keeps leaning over and saying, "You don't think you could heal them a little less because we're a bit short of bodies in the necromancy wing." <laughs> and the interaction with all of these different, um, you know, the different magics and the way that, and most especially the the palacine approach to all of this which is just insanely brutally pragmatic is does it work fine we will use it but no talk about god's place no you, worship no nothing what, like uh, the idea of this sounds amazing do you would you have to sort of um would you have to understand the rest of your, uh the books within that sort of scene or is it would you be able to pick it up and understand it's absolutely it's absolutely pick up a ball on its own the, the way i'm trying to do this um this series which may run to five if they'll let me is that each book is going to be independently readable without having read any of the previous ones it will have some common characters where if you've read the previous ones, you'll be able to say, oh, that's that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you won't need to know it to read the book. I'm not doing the, the kind of current Marvel, Disney, Star Wars thing where if you have not read all of the associated stuff, then the plot will make no sense. <laughs> Each book, theoretically, is going to be completely readable on its own um, with just a bit of Easter egg and added value if you have read the previous one. So it's less sequential and more just kind of books telling stories in that setting Yes, I mean the the juggle is there's gonna be basically a the, there's a big story going on in the background, and it yeah. is base essentially it's the history of the rise and fall of the Palestine, sort of as as a power. Um, but for each book, you will see the foreground, and the foreground is independent. But if you're reading all the books together, you'll get to see these big changes happening in the background, and occasionally impacting on the lives of the characters. So it's not like the like the almost the overarching story of the of the series of books is very much in the background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. That yeah, I mean, cool. it's one of the, the the big thing will be. I don't know if I can make this stick for the fifth book. Yeah, I was thinking. Or that. the fifth the fifth book may have to be the one where you kind of have to have read at least some of the others. Um, but we'll see how we go. I haven't got that far yet. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's one of the reasons I haven't watched Ahsoka at the minute because I, I haven't watched any. Well, I watched a little bit of the Rebels and a little bit of uh, Clone Wars, and I have, it, it didn't really stick with me. So I, I feel like if I don't watch them, I'm not going to fully get all the little sort of kind of sub things that are going on. So I've left it so I can sort of go back and watch them all. Yeah, I mean your your, your mileage may vary, but I think it's um. I think maybe more in the Marvel than the Star Wars, this the drift towards when well, you've not only have to have seen these previous films, but you've also got to subscribe to this particular TV network <laughs> and watch these particular these particular TV series, which, you know, individually they're absolutely great, but that's a hell of an assumption 
to be able yeah. to understand what is going on in a film that you've just spent money yeah you know for tickets and popcorn yeah, yeah, yeah. um so i think it's and and it's it's one of the you can kind of see the inflating and getting more and more unwieldy and i i feel we're going to get a bit of a crash there unless they rein it in on a, on a, a complete well kind of kind of linked into what we've been saying but obviously the new napoleon film and i'm a massive sort of history buff so i love mm. it uh one of the and i haven't seen it yet but uh one of the sort of kind of complaints is that one um if you're a history buff you're not gonna like it because it's not historically that accurate there's a lot of sort of jumping around and things that it it you know isn't isn't what he had he didn't do or it didn't happen uh but if you're not a history buff and you're just watching it it jumps around so much that there's no sort of cohesion in what's happening within the history so it's like you know it's a war is happening and then suddenly there's nothing happening and then there's a war happening and and there's no sort of cohesion between it to sort of i i mean i saw it on saturday all right um with uh i saw it with my son who is 16 and is by no means a history buff he has seen some youtube videos on napoleon for it and i mean he got it he followed it i i got it i'm i'm by no means a history buff i know a bit about the period yeah possibly i'm just in that middle space which makes me the perfect audience i don't know but i i felt they did a reasonably good job of either giving you like the cliff notes of what was going on in a couple of lines yeah or even, or even just like a little caption, or alternatively, just eliding it so that you didn't actually know what was going on, but you didn't realise that you didn't know what was going on because it seemed it, it kind of made sense in context of previous scenes, even though if you looked at the history of it, you think, oh no, that was actually like five years later rather than like happening immediately after this other thing. Yeah, I like I like I I'm, I'm glad you said that because I'm worried. Cause I you know I, I did my dissertation on Napoleon, like in Napoleonics. I, I'm I I play. A oh, lot you'll of... probably hate it. <laughs> <laughs> you are not the target audience. Master. Yeah, well, it's like I, the thing is I. When it comes to history, like I have, I do have a bit of a grudge against. I really don't like um, when they bastardize history, like will, um, like Braveheart and the Patriot and things like that, where they, it's like Mel, basically any historical film with Mel Gibson in it, <laughs> um, you know, where they literally just they just they just make stuff up, and it's just like it, it's it's. Yeah, an, I, I don't think it's that. I mean, I they having i mean what my son asked me after we came out to the, so is that all the things that happened in the napoleonic war and it's like uh, well no we didn't have the peninsula war we didn't have the battle of the nile we didn't i mean that all it's just like it's a really streamlined and it, it's i mean structurally it's fascinating because it is very much lots and lots of short scenes yeah pelting through history because the amount of material they have to get through even after you've cut out all of those other bits which are kind of yeah, you know, which have encompassed entire, you know, like the entirety of sh- Sharp <laughs> is in there somewhere, but you don't even see any of the territory. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that Sean Bean should be in. a cameo in the background. Uh, well, that's, that, that's the thing is, it's like, there is apparently a director's cut, which is like four and a half hours. And I was just even thinking, I don't even know four and a half hours would be enough to get through everything. Like, I was like, you know, there's so many pivotal battles and stuff. Apparently, like, I don't think Leipzig, the Battle of Leipzig's even sort of kind of touched upon. Nope. Um, so you got a lot of these sort of big, battles that are sort of it goes through obviously um i don't does it even have trafalgar in there the battle doesn't have the nope. you said like it doesn't there's have no, the, there's no trafalgar no there's battle no, in the Isle. I mean, yeah uh i mean wellington turns up basically for waterloo uh, 
Um, <laughs> but they, I mean, the thing is, they're telling it. It, but it because of these choices, I think it does still tell a coherent story of Napoleon and Josephine, and it is very much. It is Napoleon and Josephine, and that is what the the, the yeah. focus of the film is. Yeah, and I, like that's if it's like that, I, that doesn't bother me. It's when they just make stuff up, like um, you know, and when they change history. I can't remember the name of the film because I refuse to watch it. It's basically about the the you uh, the. It's about an American submarine that captures the Enigma machine, but it was really a British. Uh, oh, a British... well, I think it's that is Enigma, isn't it? Uh, no, it's called J- it? Ju something or other. I think it's the name oh, of the okay. boat. Yeah, uh, it was to the point where they had it in Parliament, where they were outraged. Where it's like this, which when they do things like that, I, I can understand small changes. Like, for example, from what I've told, I've been told, uh, like they shoot. Uh, Napoleon shoots a cannonball at the pyramids, which never happened. But I think it's more mm. of a thing that's like, you know, it was to get over the whole, like, conquest of that area and stuff and sort of, you know, show up impactfully. So small things like that don't really bother me. I can get over as long as it's a good film. It's when they change things like dates and, like, overly sort of things. Well, this never happened. Like, I know Napoleon never met Wellington, but it's 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 not something that's going to bother me that much you know as long as you know i can it's not a huge mass it's not a huge thing it's not going to bother me it's just when they change things majorly and they're just like so you don't think um napoleon was kidnapped and to send demas ziggy piggy ziggy piggy (laughs) (laughs) waterloo (laughs) man yeah but yeah i'm glad because i I really want to see it and i would i've just wanted a napoleonic like the waterloo the old school film um i i've just i love that film and sharp i was a massive sharp fan uh in fact i've just i've just listened to the last sharp uh this last sharp book this came out um but um yeah, I, I love it. Uh, it's like one of my favourite sort of eras. And uh, I was just like, oh, I just want this to be so good. And then when I was hearing mixed reviews about it, I was like, no. <laughs> so I've been really like, yeah. I haven't gone to see it yet because I don't want it to just make me sad. And I'm kind of thinking maybe I should just wait for the four hour thing to come out and then maybe it'll feel it'll feel a bit better. But well, from what you said... Napoleon and the other eight all go all the way to Mordor. Yeah! <laughs> yeah! I'll watch that. So I'm just like, I'll okay, okay, yeah. But and I, the giant spiders. Yeah, like, if they did a series, you know, like, it's because it's so massive, like, it's the Napoleonic Wars. You do a series, it's called Sharp. I know, but the, do you want... The, I love, I love... Well, must, I mean, there must be a full-on, you know, 50 episode French TV series on Napoleon, surely. I, I don't know, to be honest. Obviously, there's. Uh, there's your homework. They tell, there was the. Um, uh, what's War and Peace? They sort of uh, dramatized. Oh, the BBC the, adaptation of War and Peace. Yeah, they did War and Peace, yeah, which, was, which was good. Yeah, it was, it was good. Um, I think there was an older version of War and Peace, I think, from, from ages ago. Um, but it's just like sharp which i love the but it, it's it's so low budget <laughs> it's like you know you got the you've got the same sort of um you've got the same sort of stunt guy playing a french guy and then suddenly he's a british soldier and then he's he's somebody and he's died a million times and he's always got this dodgy mustache on and it's like oh he's french he's got a mustache oh no he's not he's just a young face guy and it's and it's and it's like the battle of waterloo there's about 10 guys standing on a hill gonna you know vive la france and you're just like 
as I, I I love this just because you know I grew up with it, but it's just so small. It doesn't sort of encompass what the Napoleonic Wars were. These massive, huge engagements and stuff. So I kind of just wanted something that was epic, like the like the Waterloo film from you know so the seven was it seventies I think it came out in the seventies. Um, yeah, something like that. So when I saw some of the battles, I was like, oh, this could be good. So I'm just a bit. I'm a bit worried. Uh, 2002 miniseries, apparently. Oh. That's going to go away after this after this uh, podcast, and then we do watch it. <laughs> what, what does it say? Uh, somebody says on YouTube, are we talking about the recent Napoleon movie? I heard it was a low-key, uh, low-key, a softcore adult film. <laughs> uh, okay. Not particularly. No. I mean, there's 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 some sex in it, but like I say, it's the yeah, it, it, the the Napoleon Josephine relationship is a big focus of the film. Well, yeah. yeah. So do you think like do you think like, the the they did get it on historically. They did get it on. <laughs> no, she got, she seemed to get on. She got on with a lot of other people as well. She wasn't. She was known to be that very also f- in the film. with her free yeah. with her affections. But that's in the film as well, like the. Was was how how actually was Josephine uh, portrayed in the film? Do you think I never met her, so I can't say. <laughs> apparently, she's apparently um, she, yeah, she so. is. I mean, I, I, uh, the the name of the actress escapes me, but the performance is absolutely amazing. And the oh, film, she was in the Crown, wasn't she? She played. Um, oh, who did she play in the Crown? Uh, one of the princess, um, possibly. <laughs> I'm really bad with names as well when it comes to actors. Um, but yeah, she was in The Crown from, I understand. Um, but yeah. Vanessa Kirby. That's Vanessa it. Kirby. Yeah. She, oh, you know, she, I mean, it, it, there's a lot of very good performances in it. She is phenomenal. The number of people who turn up from like British sitcoms of the 90s uh, in really? serious Napoleonic roles is a fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Which oh, yeah, Scott? yeah. I, I love when you do that. I, 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 on a random note, I was watching Trains, Planes and Automobiles last night for unknown reasons because it just popped up and I thought, it, and I was like, holy shit, that's Kevin Bacon. And then it had, um, who else did it have in it just randomly? Fuck, I, there was somebody else who was just, um, ah, crap, it's, it's gone now. But there was, there was another person. I was like, holy shit, that's that person. And I love when you go back and you watch these things before they were like famous. And you're like, oh my God, that's that person from there. I love stuff like that. This is, yeah, I mean, this is like, oh, it's him from Coupling and it's him from Green Wing and that kind of thing. And it's just like <laughs> all, all of them just getting really quite decent little, you know, quite decent little scenes and a decent amount of words. And it's, yeah. you know, it's always nice to see see people that you've, you, you've seen on as like on a British TV level getting that kind of exposure. The one thing I, the one thing I did serve, um, uh, Ridley Scott, um, he, he said, oh, there's a lot of people obviously uh, moaning about the history, more, more, more like nerdy historians mm. sort of moaning about the history and stuff. And he says, you know, uh, were you there? Then shut the fuck up. Basically, I think was what he said. And then somebody, there was an interview with the historian. He said, yeah, if you kind of did it like that, then no historian could say anything because, you know, nobody. Yeah, I'm not, I, I, I don't, I, I feel that if you're making a, mo- a film that is, Purporting to be a historical film, you kind of have some responsibility. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, even if it's just to the extent of, well, you've got to know the history in order to know way, in order to plan where you're going to have to deviate from it. But it's, I, I, yeah, I, I, I was a bit eh, about about that as a as a as a response. Yeah. 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 Because I mean, get, get the push though. It's less of a 
character study of Napoleon, but more focus on his relationship with Josephine like, than, than anything else. Yeah, I've heard that. Apparently, the, the extended version has a lot more uh, with the, their interactions with each other. It is more sort of about them, which I could I could get sort of if it was just... If it is, again, I've not seen it, so if it is just about their relationship, then you can kind of understand the other parts just being sort of small parts about, but that sort of surround their relationship. And apparently the new, uh, well, the, the, the director's cut's meant to sort of emphasize that a bit more. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, sorry. Carry on. Anyway, back, to, back to the book. Um, one thing I wanted to ask about as well is, how much preparation do you mentioned before you do planning how much planning do this take especially given that you are coordinating it within an existing series of your own and like placing it very carefully how did you kind of plan all that out exactly well this is uh so for this series i'm normally i will plan quite heavily you know chapter to by chapter beat by beat with this series i'm actually kind of letting it run so what i plan is the world um i get a very clear idea of the world and the characters and where the characters come from and what their sort of trajectories and pressures are and then i just basically follow them around like i'm doing a little documentary and i skip them one to the next and that's what i've done with city of last chances and that's what we've done with this one and the and the next one and usually i you know as 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 the book comes together i'll start to get ideas further and further ahead as to where i see things going but um, the key thing is, it's it's knowing how the world works. It's knowing what is out there, how the institutions fit together, what sort of. <clears throat> I mean, at one point there was it was even this the just the idea that well, what is the pornography like in this world and, and things like that. <laughs> Because it's going to exist. Yeah, we're talking about a world which has printing presses, and we're talking about, um, yeah, we're talking about soldiers, and therefore pornography is going to come into it. Um, but it's if you have that kind of uh, very solid grounding in a world which all fits together very nicely, then the world will tell its stories ideally, and you can basically just record the stories that the world is telling to you, and that's that's how this book has worked out and what will happen is those stories will start to come together because they're the bit of your brain and um kind of at a subconscious level which is working towards weaving them into it into a narrative and so everything will come together ideally at that right point and you'll get your climatic moments and your nice character arcs and everyone getting to do a bit that justifies their presence in the book and it's a bit hair raising when you're writing it like this because Without that chapter by chapter plan, I'm not guaranteed that's going to happen. But so far, it has worked. Interesting. It feels like almost like you basically get all the planning done, then wind it up and just let it play out. Yeah, I mean, ideally, that's 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 how it goes. And you know, you don't, you know, hopefully, you don't have to nudge it too far so it doesn't just run into a leg of the table. <laughs> yeah, I mean, also one thing as well is like you know, the pers- uh, perspective of the characters is very much in the midst of this war. And mm. it feels like there's been kind of almost a shift in the fantasy genre of kind of going for that more grounded, grunt-level perspective. Rather than well, being we've, we've been having that for a while. I mean, this is... I, I think I'm kind of... I don't think I'd be writing this without a lot of the 90s uh, kind of gritty, grimy fiction. Because it... 
in the big heroic stories, you always kind of know why you're doing a thing. Uh, so you yeah. know why you, the the magic the magic sort of thing has to be done to defeat the Dark Lord so that the X can return and everything can be lovely again, etc., etc., etc. Whereas, I mean, one of the my kind of I think biggest kind of reading revelations was reading Abercrombie's The Heroes. Oh, and yes. you have so many battles yes. in that where basically no one knows what the hell is going on. Yes. Um, you have the commanders not knowing what the battle is doing and you have people on the front lines. And it's almost like that scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail where you, you're just watching the battle through a slit in a helmet and he you've got this tiny, so tiny viewpoint. Good. He is so good. And, oh. yeah, and I think in a book, because you can get into the head of people, in that in that in that situation it can become incredibly intense and i mean one of the things i do in this book is when you get the scenes in the medical tent i switch to present tense and everything is just happening in the instant and you have no you have no view forward and you have no view back because the characters are literally just dealing with things as they are thrown at them and have no control over what's going on they just have to try and handle whatever turns up through the tent with the next kind of consignment of wounded and um it's that but i mean but in that i think i am very much building on this tradition of um of the fantasy books of the um the 90s and early early 2000s which were very much bringing things down to that basic level to that to the that idea of, of of very kind of personal um not necessarily laudable character goals and just that that kind of that grimy fight in the mud where everyone is just trying to get hold of the one knife and keep they keep dropping it on the floor the um so how do you because obviously it's magic and magic is literally we we touch a thing and, it, and it, you're sort of you you get d4 health points back but um how do you how do you give that sense of? I'm assuming there's going to be half. There's going to be chaos. You know, w there's yeah. the battle come, wound and wound is coming. Is there like a? Is there going to? Be, do you have sort of like a triage? Is there sort of like certain wounds can't be? There is with? absolutely yeah. yeah. I mean, so the um, the the chief uh, of the medical unit is a character called Ollery or the Butcher, as he is known. And yes, his his role is basically triage. He is an alchemist. He gives dispenses the the painkillers and he dispenses the kind of the 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 uppers that keep the medics medics going after forty hours of um, surgery, and he looks over the wounded and decides who can be saved and who can't be saved and who is urgent and who can wait, and sometimes he gets it wrong because that's life. Uh, and he also he has a particular he has his black flask that he gives to those who can't save and they get marked on the forehead and they're the ones that go to the necromancers and that's the choice he has to make every time there's a battle. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, and there, but I mean one of the, the things with the magic in this is the magic is this has inherent limitations. Um, so for example, when you're the sympathetic healer, you literally get full. You have right. I have now ruined all of my limbs and burned most of the skin off my face and taken a wound in the gut. And it's probably about time I stopped because if I do anyone else, I'm going to die. Uh... And and again, you see, you know, she's got that. She, that character has like a core of students who are trying uh, to learn the art from her, and they don't necessarily get it right all the time. So sometimes they overdo it, and so sometimes you know it's her students being carried out to the necromancers instead of the um the casualties well, that's really um, good angle. and also we have a character who is uh we meet one of the characters we meet in the first book who turns up again for this 
Um, he is a priest of a healing god. He is the sole remaining priest and indeed worshipper of this healing god. This healing god does not have any truck with soldiering or violence. If you are healed by him and you do anything, you you so much as poke someone in the eye, all of your wounds come back. <laughs> this is a really terrible thing to have in the middle of a battle. Uh, and so you get all of these different kind of schools of healing and these religions and all of these things, which are, you know, as, as I was saying, are basically under threat of execution just for existing because the Palestine are not, do not officially hold with any of them. And none of them really suit the situation. So it's a matter of, well, what, what can you do? Who, do, who, who can you patch up? Who can you um, inflict your religion on in order to save their life? And what happens to them next? I am sold. I'm completely sold. That's <laughs> like what an amazing. I mean, idea. I've got to say, I I genuinely think it's some of the best stuff I've ever written. Uh, if it sounds because... like you had a lot of fun writing it as well. I had a lot of fun, but it's also it is it is full on emotional trauma of yeah. a way in, in at a level that I don't normally get to because these are not you know these are characters who are in a war, a spectacularly brutal war, and they're not soldiers. They're not actually your standard hit you know heroic character they're not even the clueless guy in the front line they are basically having to deal with the trauma just being unloaded on them all of this time and also with the potential threat that at any moment the whole palace institution might say yes ideologically this is not this is not, this is not something we want we're going to keep doing so you can have them all shot now yeah, yeah, that's How, right. That's you, right up my street. I love that. Sort of thing. <laughs> do you have to deal with like them healing soldiers from the other side? From the um, they don't. I don't think they at any point get any get any soldiers from the other side who aren't say, you know, we need this one packed up so that we can horribly torture them, torture things out of them. Um, so that's that is somewhere it could have gone that didn't quite get get fitted in. Yeah. Because yeah, I mean, that would kind of throw up a whole lot of kind of social, political, ethical issues mm. as well to to explore, and would be yeah, it would. I mean, did you kind of have like a set word count when you were set kind of writing this, or was just a we'll see how far it goes? I mean, if I, I I mean I think with this book, word counts were to um to me what deadlines were to Douglas Adams, the word count kind of zipped by somewhere in the middle. And um So it's a bit of a doorstop know, size. It's a big book. It's one of the biggest books I've, I've written for a while. It's um I can't quite remember what it clocks in at, but it's um I think it's 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 a bit longer than City of Last Chances, which wasn't small. And yeah, I mean your books I like to they are good chunky books. I mean yeah, my science fiction is getting shorter. Actually, a lot of the so yeah. uh, a lot of the science fiction I've got coming up is clocking in around the hundred thousand word mark, which for me is relatively short. Is there any reason to giving for that kind of shortening? I'm not sure. I mean, part of it might be I've because I've done a lot of novellas. I found um, I've got into the habit of exploring sort of complicated sci-fi ideas in a lot fewer words than I'd normally take. And I think that's then carried into books so that um, next year's Alien Clay and Servant Model, they're all about 110,000 rather than, say, Children of Time, 150,000. Yeah, I don't so, think I could have slimmed that one down, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, that was a chunky book and, and a glorious read, but also there's a glorious weight to it as well. And I mean, like, this comes on to like, it, do you, why can't you know, most authors get focused on either fantasy 
or science fiction or horror, but you're kind of just jumping between all the genres at at will and at whim and happily so. You you refuse to be pigeonholed. It's like that's all felt like that does that. No, you do you do everything. I mean, I try. I, I I had to fight for quite a while to get a a decent fantasy series out um, because I was very much known for science fiction, and so science fiction was what publishers wanted of me. Um, so I was absolutely delighted when I when I got the chance through Head of Zeus to do uh, City of Last Chances, and and delighted it did well because I I really enjoy writing fantasy and I really enjoy writing science fiction, but they do tick slightly different sets of boxes. Mm-hmm. So I like I I am I am enormously grateful that I've got the privilege of being able to skip from one to the other. Do you find you have it's kind of almost a different headspace when you're writing the different genres? There's a bit more freedom with with fantasy, I think. Um, yeah, I, I can when I, if I'm creating a fantasy world, I can go wherever I want. If I'm creating a science fiction world, if I'm creating a hard science fiction world, at least um, I very much got that left wall of how what is the currently understood state of this particular branch of science mm. uh, and that's what i need to work with and then space opera fits somewhere in the middle so the final architecture series is very much it's science fiction but the you know the science in the books is by no means actual science yeah hashtag space wizards <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean like if you look at like some like, what was your approach to defining the magic how did you develop a magic system for um, House of Open Wounds? So, um, I mean, I had the advantage that I'd kind of seen how the magic shook out in City of Last Chances. So mm. there is a certain feel and a certain kind of structure to the way magic works. I guess the two parts of which is, first of all, it's, there's always, it's magic with cost, which is a fairly common yeah. thing you see in books. So... You you don't get anything for free. Either there is a god limiting what you can do with it, or there are just inherent bargains. I mean, sometimes literally, because you get um, you get a lot of demons summoning in this world. Uh, you see it, and and because it's it is that kind of world, the demon summoning is used in very pragmatic ways. So in City of Last Chances, the demons are your the things that are powering your factories, basically. So you have industrial demon summoning, and you have a demon summoners union, and things like that. Um, and in this one, obviously, you have a uh, military demon, demon summoning. So there is a, a demonist with the with the company, and he's a spectacularly unpleasant character. Um, but he, it's his job to just mass contract demons and send them out as as kind of, kind of a bullet screen, so that the human soldiers can close. The summit's almost like an element of absurdist humour running through this to an extent. Um. I mean, kind of, yeah. You, you. There is certainly a lot of, especially when you get. I mean, I, I mean, honestly, one of the things when I when I'm writing bleak, I also try and write funny. And yeah. there are there are never so many jokes and humorous moments in my books as when I'm writing about something that is truly sort of tragic and appalling. Because I think you need to leaven it. I mean, this is another thing. I think that Abercrombie does extremely well. Is he's often a very funny writer because he is also writing about profoundly bleak things that you need to mm. take the edge off yeah yeah agreed he, but he's he's just like um i got into him late uh just because my boss sort of uh sort of uh, um said you know you need to what you need to read the first law series and um 
and I was just blown away how one how he does, how he does battles just so in depth and uh, you know battles are hard I think for any writer to do but he does them in such a way that keeps you sort of engaged but shows how chaotic things are mm-hmm. and just the whole the whole thing is done so beautifully but there is there is that sort of humor to it which does take the edge off it slightly without blunting it it's not like you can there's certain things like um what well, the, the, the 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 most recent thor film for example um mm-hmm. had like gore was such a uh the, the the darkness that they had like his character was would have been amazing but it was completely blunted and the edge was taken off by the fact the slapstick comedy that was just was thrown around it all the way and there was no balance whatsoever but there is sort of like he just seems to be able to give you that sort of there is a bit of there is there is a bit of not not it's not comedy but there, there's a bit of lightheartedness within it but it doesn't blunt the dark the the the, the edge of the whole thing and it does it so well it's so mm-hmm. well it and it, it just the way his characters are and the way they act and um just the whole thing you know he's 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 amazing blows my mind the, um, i've read all nine of the books and um amazing yeah, I mean, like, there's such a humor. Like, you have to kind of manage it very well to make sure you're not kind of taken away from the bleakness. Is that, would that be fair? Yeah, well, the thing is, I mean, I think there's a certain style of humor that complements it, though. Uh, yeah. I mean, you see it in uh, you see it in Lynch, you see it in uh, K.J. Parker, you see it in Amber Crombie. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, with, with, with me, you, I mean, I think it's probably I've used it more to date in the novellas, uh, like Walk into Old Brown and uh, One Day All This Will Be Yours. When I'm so in One Day This Will Be Yours, I'm talking about they ha- there is a war that literally broke time. The entirety of human history is just has just been wrecked, and the one person who's kind of come out of it is this really quite horrible person whose mission is to make sure that nobody ever invents time travel, and he does it by murdering entire civilizations to stop it happening. <laughs> And it's funny. It's the it is my funniest book to date. And similarly, <laughs> because it's kind of got to be, because otherwise yeah. it'd be awful. And similarly, uh, so Service Model, which is coming out next year, is basically it's a book about a robot, a robot butler, the robot valet, in fact, trying to work out what he's supposed to do now that human civilization has completely collapsed and gone gone to crap in a variety of really quite appalling ways. And again, it's it's. It is it is the closest to Douglas Adams I'm ever going to get as a writer, <laughs> um, because what's going on is so incredibly horrible. Um, but of course, you're seeing it all from the point of view of a robot that does not in any way understand what's going on, and so right. there is it is just this constant string of of, of bathos <laughs> as this robot tries to make this utterly collapsed world fit his idea of being a rather high class sort of posh servant robot. It almost reminds me of Douglas, uh, not Douglas Adams, uh, Charlie Strasser's uh, The Laundry Files, where you have got like mm. the kind of, you know, ten- like tentacle monsters from beyond space and time meeting... The banality like, of the kind of the bureaucracy and yeah. how to file the right paperwork so that you can defeat the Elder Gods properly. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's absolutely... And I, and I think he... And again, it's it's one of those... I mean, I think the... Rather than 
that kind of that Thor style model where it is basically yeah. it's a comedy and there's there's sort of a serious plot in there, but you kind of it's all just kind of bouncing along. It's the with the, with this sort of book, it's very much you keep laughing until you suddenly realise none of it is actually funny, and it's that yeah. drop I think which is um, it's certainly. I mean, Abercrombie does it extremely well, but it's that 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 is what you need to make that work. Yeah, is yeah. you suddenly realise the thing that you've been finding very funny actually really is very very bad. It's the fact that the punchline isn't funny. The fact that the punchline yeah. isn't funny, and that sort of kind of just mm. that that. F- in a in a way, sort of makes it all Dog the worse. Dog soldiers, an example of that. I was going to say exactly, exactly. It's like Dog, I know they're in. I know I, Dog Soldiers by Neil Marshall. That film. Oh, I thought you said Dark Souls. Or Dark Souls. No, Dark Souls. where there Dark are a lot soldiers. of laughs in Dark yeah. Souls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, Dog Soldiers by Neil Marshall. That that was I like, know that was a full on horror film, but there was kind of comedic moments, but they never broke the horror. The fact mm. they were under attack by six werewolves and they were dying one by one by one. Yeah, that's again. That is another example of good balance. You do have that comical air, that comical sort of side, but it's not overshadowed by the horror. Or sorry, the the comedy, the horror doesn't. They don't overshadow each other. Yeah, they balance each other out, and it makes it, it because they're two completely. They are completely diametrically opposed to each other. That you know they work so well mm-hmm. together when balanced, and I think that's it. If you can get that balance, then they are two opposing forces that just um what's the word uh compliment each other yeah yeah, compliment each other really well um and if you do it then it just makes both of them more the more powerful yeah i mean um how long does this book take i mean you are like i say you have got a (laughs) scary prolific how (laughs) how long did this take you to write from like the first draft so the first for this book and this is not my normal pace at all for this book i think the first draft was about two months but that is insanely fast and that was purely because it just told itself and i had so much fun i was literally writing it every spare moment i had um and you know in you know, in in contrast, the book I've been working on now uh, at the moment, which is considerably shorter, has been going on for many more months than that because it is much harder to write. It's oh. you know, it, it's it's got a variety of different directions it's pulling in, and keeping those balance is very difficult. But um, yeah, this this particular fantasy series is just an absolute joy to, to write. Is, basically, what is about that for you makes it so easy to write? So you can write like a. Uh, 50,000 words in a month. I think it is... I think it is something I managed to hit on with the setting. Um, And I I suspect it's probably because this setting has been coming together in my head for about 10 years. Mm. Since that panel, and also since I decided... So, for for example, uh, a long time ago, I decided I would like to do a fantasy limits. And City of Last Chances is kind of that. Right. And it's also the, the when I said I would like to do a fantasy Casablanca, and it's also that. So the, all of these ideas and ways you can bring them about on the fantasy stage have been coming together for a long time. And they've kind of built this world, which just kind of, it keeps going on way beyond the page. It feels very um, real and complete and believable to me. And it is a, because it is at this kind of crisis point where you've got this empire expanding and at the same time starting to crack under its own, the weight of its own institutions, mm. 
it's it's such an enormously um rich source of individual stories the the although the series as a whole is about this this sort of enormous state um each individual book is about these individual stories so you've got the all the different people living in the occupied city you've got all the people uh in the army camp and in the um the field hospital the third book um which is also written is going to be set in in um basically a diplomatic mission and dip um very much uh, I, I with this one i'm very much looking at things like the east india company and the way they yeah, carried yeah, yeah. on business and their the the way that individuals there related to the culture they were basically pirating uh, and then the way they related to their own sort of home state because they they kind of started going you know they 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 start they start going off message at various points both um in a sense of starting to think actually this place is quite nice and also actually i will just get massively personally rich depending on which ones which ones and which time but um again it's 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 that kind of flashpoint of people whose individual story is just leading them to collide with the perceived manifest destiny of this particular sort of spectacularly unpleasant colonial power, mm. uh, whether they are within it or without it. Are your, uh, are your books on going to be, are, are there any audio versions of them, by the way? Yeah. So there, the, uh, there is a very good audio with uh, David Thorpe uh, of City of Lost Chances. Um, I'm hoping he's also doing the audio for House of Open Wounds, so we get that nice continuity of kind of nice. accents and characters and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, thus far, I think I've been extremely lucky with, with all of my audio narrators. Um, yeah, you have to be really careful with that. Again, we've, we've mentioned it a few times. It's like if there's been, we've had authors on, and um, I've gone, that sounds like an amazing, and I've gone and downloaded the audio, and some of them, the the, the audio actors haven't been, in my mind, uh, engaging enough, and they've mm -hmm. sort of made me go, I can't listen to this, I need to go and read the book, because this is sort of kind of taking away from it, so you have to re you have to have a really good um, voice actor to get, get it through. Do you have the influence on the uh, voice actors? Um, a very little. So sometimes I'll get sent, like, three or four voice reels and well, you know, these are the people we're looking at which of these do you like um when we've had a good one so for example um sophie aldra did a fantastic job with um oh, yeah. doors of eden and so when um the final architecture series came around i was saying look can we get her to do that as well because i'd really love for her to do more more of the books so yeah it's it's i i get a bit of a say but i don't by any means get the say yeah so, you, you, know, they, you you have some input but it's, yeah yeah i mean i've done a few of my own uh i've oh, made all novella novella ink, but I, I just a week or so ago i finished um recording uh put away childish things which came out towards the beginning of this year so, so the audio for that should be out at some point next year i think would you have had to go into like a full-on recording studio to do that yes yeah because my my home setup here is by no means good enough quality yeah <laughs> Yeah, I, I get that where you have to have, there's, uh, what's the name of the, uh, there's a guy who narrates, birthday one, the, the Red Rising, Red Rising, what's his name, uh, audio, uh, who is narrated by Tim Jared Reynolds, um, and I've, 
if if he because I, 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 I'm so used to him now being the narrator for those those that, that well it's mm-hmm. book seven now I think we had Lightbringers just come out so yeah. and if he's not on there I'd be like super upset uh, I was kind of upset when they had different they had different actors in doing different things and stuff but um, I'm, I'm much like though, certain author certain narrators have become associated with a certain oh yeah it's like it's like Jonathan yeah. Keeble yep. it's like Jonathan Keeble in uh, 40k books or the Horus Heresy books if it's not Jonathan Keeble then it's just like pfft, of my not well not listen to it because it has to be Jonathan Keeble, but yeah, yeah. I mean I've heard that. I, mean, I know that the uh, the narrator they have for the Rivers of London books, uh, Aronovich is uh, is is extremely beloved, and I've, I've I know I've heard people singing his praises, and I mean I think also it's just getting that coherency of voice for our yeah. series is Great. an enormous it, boon. Yeah. I mean, it's not always possible with availability and so forth, but um, I think it does does gift a lot to uh an an audio an audio series if you do have that yeah were you a- able to get sophie alger to uh, yes oh yeah yeah oh brilliant yes Excellent. and she's done a phenomenal job with that she's done the whole of the um the final architecture series and she's done an incredible job with it absolutely yeah because you see a lot a lot of like actors kind of moving into audiobook narration now aren't you uh, I think I think it's a perfectly good sort of second yeah. string, and I, you know, it, it's it's not massively time consuming compared to say stage work or film work, and yeah, you know, it's, it's very much a thing you can kind of do in the off season or do yeah, and, and, and they have other work. they have the vocal training to be able to narrate mm. and. So, so it feels absolute sense to me. So why not? I've always under I've always wondered how they do it. So obviously they're reading the book. Do they have to read it section by section and then think about the voices and then go back and do the voices, or do they just as they go along and they're reading it, they bring they put those voices on? So it's always sort of kind of baffled me, like if they're doing well, lots of different voices. So I mean, the, when I when I've done it, um, I will go through the manuscript and mark up. Um, I'll usually do like different characters in different colours, right? And I'll certainly I will practice ahead of time and know what voice I'm going to give to what character. And I think, and yeah, you know, this is with novellas where I may be only doing about seven or eight different characters, for example. Um, I mean, there's a oh lord, what's this? The chap who does the Shadows of the Apt books, audio books. I need to look up. Um, has like thousands of characters. Uh, ben Allen, there we go. Yeah. Thousands of characters um, he needs to bring over, bring over in, over the course of ten books. Yeah, and, and they have to fit with each other because yeah. each he's yeah we have cult, we had a little big discussion at the beginning like different accents for different cultures uh, and different accents for different different uh, insect kingdoms and so forth. So he's got a situation where you know he might have like over the course of the books, 20 or 30 characters from one city. And he's got to make them all distinct. And they've also all got to obviously be coming from the same place because that's part of that character's identity. And that's an incredible talent. Yeah. And he does, a, he, does an, he does an amazing job, but it's all pre-planned. You know, you couldn't just do it on, on the fly. Oh yeah, I, yeah. I, I struggle with doing any actions for our D and D campaign. They all end up being the same guy over and over again. <laughs> they're all Cockney. If they're if they're if they're a dwarf, they're Scottish. It's all it's all very generic and uh, trying to figure out things. <laughs> it's just oh man, the it. origin of the the Scottish dwarf. I went into a whole deep dive on this as to wow. why is it that dwarves are Scottish? And apparently, we seem to come down to it's the the BBC radio. Um, I think Lord of the Rings were giving oh, me a mix of Scottish yeah, and yeah. that 
because I mean, I think they're all dwarves, aside from Warhammer, where they think they tend to be a bit more Yorkshire, dwarves are almost universally Scottish. Which kind of ties Welsh, I suppose. Yeah, which ties in with um, the recent uh, Lord of the Rings TV series on Prime. Where they all had very strong Scottish accents. But then that's, you know, you know in the films, um, John Rhys Davis is doing a Scottish accent. Exactly, yeah. Gimli and that. Yeah. Um, but I think this all seems to be following on from the original BBC radio adaptation. I, I'm quite impressed with um, sort of the Horace Heresy series. Um, Jonathan Keeble does. Uh, he's got there's two there's there's like three Northern Irish characters and stuff. So he does like some mm-hmm. Northern Irish accents for for some of them. Like there's a princep who's a Northern Irish. They've even got a, a dark Eldar character. He's got a Northern Irish accent, and he does sort of different accents for different countries and stuff. And I think that's mm-hmm. amazing. That's really good. Where they sort of kind of like fire in these different accents, uh, and they sort of yeah. they're not what you would expect for those characters to be. You think space like Space Marines. As well, you think they're just going to be sort of, you know, the English for all intents and purposes. But then you got sort of like some with more sort of um, uh, African sort of uh, sounding, uh, depending on their legion and stuff on like that. It's really good. I like when they do that. And I mean, where do you go from here, uh, Edge? I mean, you've done fantasy, you've done science fiction, you're doing horror. Where next, cozy, cozy, cozy crime? <laughs> well, this, I mean, I, th- I think it's, I'm never going to be not speculative. In yeah. um, I find, I mean, certainly as a reader or a consumer of stuff, I usually need some sort of speculative element um, to keep to keep me going. So it's certainly the case when I'm writing. Um, I'm sure there are going to be corners of the uh, of the genre that i will spread out and explore that i haven't quite got to yet um but i don't tend to set out thinking right i'm going to do this subgenre uh usually i'll find that actually oh the book i'm writing so for example the, the book i'm writing at the moment um has turned out to be a noir detective story that was not the original plan okay, but well. that is that when i when i got it all kind of all, all okay, out so murder mystery now. <laughs> well, it's kind of it's it's it's. I mean, what is what is what is the pitch for this one? It is a cyberpunk. It's a a solarpunk, oh. uh, rather noir detective story, where the main character is a raccoon. <laughs> if anybody had that in their Adrian Tchaikovsky uh, uh, bingo card, bingo yeah. card then there is a perfectly good hard science reason why the main character is a raccoon um, <laughs> and why That's he is amazing. a noir, noir style freelance detective and it all hopefully makes perfect sense <laughs> also, it, it, I've got to say this one has kind of stretched my 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 general kind of ability not to, to kind of keep it from becoming completely ludicrous but <laughs> we'll that's amazing spin, i guess we'll see whether i succeed it oh amazing oh well and also i've just been great how do you keep all this tracked in you've got all these different stories mm-hmm. and all and like all this world building how do you keep it all kind of straight and correct is it on your head or do you have like a note-taking system um, I mean, I'm having to make more and more notes, honestly, as I get older. Uh, when I was younger, I could basically keep it all in my head. These days, um, I'm having to keep files of like character names and places and things like that, um, just to make sure it, it stays consistent. And even then, it doesn't always stay consistent. That's what uh, editors are for, to a certain extent. Um, I'm still... I but just purely, I think, because I've trained my brain that way, I'm still good at keeping an awful lot of it in my head at once. 
but these days it is more you know as i get towards the end of a book the incidents of having to go back and reread earlier chapters right how does this character speak what are the yeah what are, what are this character's mannerisms how did this character address that character and that kind of thing i do tend to have to go back and double check and never discount the joy of a good editor i mean before any before i write any before anything gets published in mine i always pass it uh, past curlier well i mean i i i I am very well aware that i need editing um i don't i mean i'm not necessarily happy to be edited in the moment but (laughs) in in, in the aftermath of it i'm always very aware that it needed doing so yeah well the first draft is the first draft for a reason that's where you kind of get the ideas down and get the basic core thrust of it and then that's when the editing plays are tightening loosening expanding condensing as it evolves but yeah it's the an editor is just essential mm-hmm. in anything i mean if it wasn't kale i wouldn't be here to be fair mm-hmm. um I mean, do, do you have like any kind of uh like um pre-editing reads readers in mind um not always there is it's 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 not uncommon that there's some particular point i need a fresh pairs at pair of eyes on so for example for the third book in this particular fantasy series um it's got a num a, a number of characters who are returnees from previous books and i really wanted to make sure it wasn't going to be one of these where if you hadn't read those previous books you'd be naggingly aware that you were supposed to recognize these characters in that kind of star warsy way yeah. and so i've basically found people who hadn't read the first book um and said right would you read this just completely cold does this work on its own do any of these characters seem like you're supposed to know who they are and they came out and said well i wasn't quite sure i wondered if this or that character and that character were from previous books and actually no they weren't they were absolutely um they were they were original to that book so obviously the, the the problem i was worried about didn't exist with that with more with the more hard science stuff i will usually try and get a science scientist of the relevant specialization to read through if if i can find one who's got the time um yeah. and sometimes it's the matter of right i am worried about this particular issue which i hope i have treated sufficiently sensitively but i will try and find at least one person to read over it and make sure I'm not being wildly and unintentionally offensive. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I remember at FantasyCon last year, there was a great panel about race and colour in in Mm. fantasy and science fiction uh, with with C.C. Adams and a few of us. And yeah, they really really made some good points there. And I was kind of right, yeah. And it's it's great. It's some fantastic points. And yeah, it really does get... You just get some people to get have a quick read through. Just make sure you're not being horrendously offensive. <laughs> yeah. Well, they've got that thing talking back to um, Doctor Who. They're changing Dav. Is it Davros? Is that the name of the Davros. character? Yeah, because they're oh, mo- they're moving him away from being in a. Oh, are we getting buffed Davros now? So yeah, he's not going to be in a the wheelchair because they don't want to show that anybody with a disability is you know is um, evil evil effectively. So <laughs> yes, they're, they're I mean mo- this is yeah. This is the fast. So this is a genuinely very, very tricky point because you are simultaneously destigmatizing disability, but you're also then erasing it. Yeah. Um, and it really, I mean, I, I think disability in particular 
science fiction and fantasy has a very peculiar relationship with disability um because especially you get to the point well this is obviously a science fiction world and therefore x disability doesn't exist and that is in itself problematic but at the same time you kind of think well medical science is striving to do things and what do you do with that with that sort of that particular vice yeah 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 without um yeah i mean i've tried this is one thing i've um with the character of ollie for example in um in the architecture series is one thing where i've tried to have right i'm going to have a character who does have a disability and it does impair them and at the same time they are living in a high-tech world where if they can get themselves sufficiently prepared they can still do as much as or considerably more than um most of the most of the people around them but it's a it's a, it's a tricky thing to to do um and you know and obviously in fantasy you have the same thing potentially with magic yeah yeah depending on what your magic can or can't do yeah yeah, yeah it reminds me of like the expanse when um in the one of the early seasons uh the one of the characters was blind the blind cameraman for the news anchor on the rosinante and yeah basically they treat him as if he was an able-bodied person he just he just had to he was only able to see through the drones so mm. basically, when they found that that um, the cameraman had uh, sabotaged Rosinante, they chucked him at the airlock and chucked um, his partner, the newscaster, as well, because he needs help to get into the, into the spacesuit, so you better both go out. <laughs> and it was great. They didn't care that he's blind. They cared that he'd uh, sabotaged the ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's it's one of those ones. It's it's always going to be a a strange one. You've got something that's being sort of in, entrenched within Doctor Who for a long time, as far as I understand, and then they they change it because they don't want to be offensive uh, to people. Yeah. But then it's like it's again, of, you know, yeah. It's it's one of those things. It's like again, you, again, are you raising like you said, are you raising something? you know, just because you don't want to offend people and are they going to be offended in the first place? And it's just sort of, I think it's more co- about covering their back than anything. Um, I don't think it's about sort of equality or anything. I think it's more the fact that they reckon somewhere down the line, somebody's going to turn around and go, well, that guy's in a wheelchair and therefore you're being, uh, you're being. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I will absolutely believe that there, that that decision is coming out of someone absolutely trying to do the right thing yeah. as they see it it's just that it's it is not um it's not a binary yeah. it is a very complex yeah there is no simple answer to a very complex question it comes yeah. down to really the specifics of what you of, of how what you do with it but i mean i think at the heart of it it's it is that gothic trope of this character is disabled and or disfigured and therefore it is an outward showing of their inward evil and that is genuinely problematic and i think we probably could do with a lot less of that agreed yeah agreed absolutely and it also kind of reminds you of uh, mark shodborn's um rules of life which was life isn't simple simple answers uh are invariably wrong and and like and um Real life requires complex, complex, complex solutions. I find, like you know, I I very much live by the sort of mantra that you know there is, there's no black and white. Um, there's always grey uh, in life in history. Um, but there's a society very much wants to have that binary 
good it wants, evil. It wants the easy answer. It doesn't want that, and so it, that's the narrative. You know, there's you know, especially what's going on at the minute. There's a lot of grey areas to things, and you know, if you sit in the middle and you kind of go, well, I kind of see this and I see this, you're you're just um, like you're you're a bad person. Whereas you have to you have to be on this side or you have to be on this side, and you've got to take it as it is. And it's like, well, I know that that's not how it works. There's a lot more complexity to things in in general throughout history, and you can't just take a side because. There's more. There's more to it, um, and you know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a there that we we are running into a fundamental way that the human brain works that we can absolutely get past, but it is effort. It is work. Yeah, exactly. It's it easy. is very much much easier to take a simple you know one side or the other response to it. It's even easier if you're taking whatever it is. You know, you're taking it from someone who's just giving it to you telling you what you need to think this um and, it, and that that's you know it, energy energy efficiency even energy efficiency in cognitive uh, processes is a very powerful driver of um sort of cognitive evolution yeah well and that's you know um again what what's uh there's a series there's a documentary about a new cult uh the twin flames or something that's on um youtube not youtube on netflix at the minute and it's basically people uh who are obviously um going through a lot of problems and it's a lot easier for them just to accept what they're being told than to question it and um you know uh say well this is this is wrong and it takes them so long to get past it that you know it's detrimental to their lives to their family's lives before they realize and it's sort of anything in real life and you, you see it on like on all social media on tiktok and things like that they ha- especially the one things that really wind me up um are the ones who come to you with authority and they have this sort of i know about this and this is this and it's very much this is how it is and this is how it is and they do it in a very affirmative authoritarian way and you can see how people just buy into it because you when i watch some of these things like i'm very I'm of the view you should always, I was always taught this when doing history, you always have to look at the other side of the coin before making a decision about something because there is always, you know, that other second story. And you have this person who's sort of kind of dictating something and they're doing it in a way you're like, yeah, yeah, I, yeah that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And you have to use that mental capacity to get past that initial, yeah, I agree with him to sort of see if there's anything more to it. And then it's a lot easier for people just to go, that guy makes sense. He's quite a nice, he's quite a nice fella. I'm just going to accept that and ignore everything else. Yeah. Critical analysis. Yeah, always yeah. Perform it. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. that I think is one of the problems with society in general people don't want to credits people don't want to think outside of the the box basically one last question because you know your favorite person and we don't want to take up any more your time is how do you relax do you relax for that matter (laughs) how how does adrian chill out yeah what are you Uh, you gaming at with the minute yeah well yeah i mean i'm i mean i'm in three different um campaigns at the moment role-playing role-playing wise <laughs> that's that's certainly one way i do um yeah. so i'm playing in a runequest game and i'm playing in a D game and i'm running a warhammer fantasy role-play oh nice nice um but beyond beyond that i sketch um and i paint oh, miniatures yeah i've seen and, some, your your sketches during inktober were amazing yes so yeah anyone who follows me on blue sky will 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 see those or be able to find those um but i mean this is kind of part of 
my my own kind of unhealthy mental processes is if i'm relaxing i kind of need to do something that has that has an end result yeah create it um, yeah. so yeah so but yes uh, yes I, I i paint stuff and i sketch stuff so what are you painting at the minute? I think the last time we talked, you were doing some Necromunda f- figures, I think, possibly. Uh, yeah, I've been doing, uh, I've just finished off my Tyranids. And All right, nice. Doing, um, I think I've just finished, there's like an Orc Commando All right. character, which I've just painted up. And now I'm I'm, I'm building a bunch of um, Cities of Sigma. All right, yeah, nice. They do some of the nibble. That's the that's the problem with Gears Workshop. They come out with some nice models. You're like, oh god damn it, you're gonna pile. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. To, I'm real. I'm trying to be brutal at the minute, especially because I've got the new epics coming out as well. So I'm just like, I've been all over that. But I've got loads of stuff that I've sold because it's like these are never going to get painted. They're just going to sit there in a pile. As much as they're beautiful and I like the thing, they need to go. So I'm trying to restrict myself, um, so I can actually do some painting and feel like I'm getting an end result to it instead of painting some of it and then moving on and then having just a box full of half painted stuff i want to actually paint stuff and put it in my in my in my uh, shelf and have something that's finished for once instead of not finishing things right anyway so uh we have um we have about house of the open wounds when is that being released i believe it's december the 7th in the uk and i think it might be as late as march in the us oh we get to read it first yes (laughs) and you've got uh service uh service model service model i june i'm I'm gonna just is it june june sounds about right yeah june 2004 i think we've got here yeah that's gonna that's also getting a a separate uk release in fact i think in a about a week we are getting we've had the us cover reveal we're getting a separate uk cover reveal i think on the 6th um and then also next year is uh saturation point which is this is not the gothic horror this is a climate horror novella from um abaddon which is playing with the idea of the wet bulb uh the wet bulb zone oh Oh. nice which is if people don't know that basically you get a combination of heat and humidity um yeah which which means that you cannot lose heat through sweat your sweat does not evaporate and because we are large uh warm-blooded creatures we boil Ah. We boil in the bag and ah. die. Ah, right, okay. And that is a real thing. That is not that yeah. I've invented. Anyway, that's the real <sighs> thing that is happening Yikes. right now at various points for just brief moments. But uh, the book posits the idea that, right, you will get a permanent wet bulb zone that humans literally cannot survive in. Awesome. And it's spreading. <laughs> that's yeah. great. Yeah, brilliant. Right. Well, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, yeah, come back for the fourth time when you, you, you will no doubt see it from <laughs> me again uh, with the, the amount of books that are coming out. Yeah, come back. Um, but yeah, for tonight, I've been Matt Gary. With me has been Peter Allison. Good night, everyone. And our special guest, Adrian Chajkowski. Good night. Hi, everybody. Bye.